Welcome to the Swampflex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are recording in three separate locations. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swampflex. And we are here to talk about movies, just things we've been watching lately, and returning to some unfinished business from a previous episode. We thought we were done with the cube, but we are returning to puzzle at it some more. As it turns out, there's no escape. There's no so many escape. more dimensions yeah. to uh, study. There's like four <laughs> or five at least. At least. How's everybody been doing? Anything going on in the real world before we slip into the virtual one? I have nothing new to report. That's why I was just kind of throwing it out there. I've just been uh, doing work and side work. I paid for one textbook with two babysitting jobs, which is so depressing. So yeah, you know, work, school, work, work after work. I will say that I went to a birthday party on Friday evening where we played some games and in the background was playing Something Wicked This Way Comes, which was a previous movie of the month here for us at Swamp Flicks. Yes. And at one point in the evening, I was like, wait, are we are we watching my VHS copy of Something Wicked This Way Comes? And our host said, <laughs> yes. Uh, we followed that by watching uh, uh, Incubus, which is the infamous William Shatner film shot in Esperanto. Um, it was silent in the background while Hopalong played over the speakers, so... I'm not going to count that as me finally having seen that, but those are things that occurred in the real world. I, I do want to talk about some movies that I actually saw, but first, I, I do want to know what you've been watching, Allie. Um, so I actually haven't really been watching uh, much. I, I obviously am saying I've been horribly busy, unfortunately, that means I've only really watched like an episode of TV here or there. Continuing my watch through of Sailor Moon for who knows how many teenth times. Uh, <laughs> still loving it, always. Uh, <laughs> but I also started watching Pokemon in Spanish to study <laughs> for uh, Spanish. Um, it's pretty good, actually. I uh, did not expect them to translate the entire theme song into Spanish. But... Ooh. Also, the entire polka rap. Do the names change, or is it just like a accent it's, difference? It's just that? an accent difference. It's great. Uh, I don't know. I think the polka rap's better in Spanish. It's my hot take. I buy that. Uh, but yeah, you know, other than that, I read a couple books, but this isn't a book podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what have you been reading, though? I've been in sort of... Uh, thing for the past few months where I've read a lot of romance novels. So I just finished the first two Bridgerton novels. I have not watched the show, uh, <laughs> but I nice. feel like the books are better already. And then I was reading um, The Last Stop uh, by Casey McQuinston, I think is their name. It's uh, the same person who re wrote Red, White, and Royal Blue, but I haven't read that book. But this book is great. Yeah, so a lot of romance. I'm feeling romantic. I think I'm going to read Carmilla for the first time this week for an episode we're doing next time. Nice. Uh, so maybe this is going to turn into a book podcast gradually. Yeah, gradually. It'll be a little hard to make the deadline every week of a new book to discuss, but we could probably do it. I mean, so long as we're just like having 
page-turning, steamy romance novels I can do. Yeah. I devoured them somehow. I'm not a fast reader, but I was just like, I'm done. Read another. <laughs> Give me more. Well, I have been reading Shishin Liu's novel, The Three-Body Problem, um, which is Ooh, sort of I've an alternate history. I'm really enjoying it so far. It's made its way through my entire friend group. We have a friend who is a uh, an evolutionary biologist who I guess read it first about a year ago, and then he recommended it to me and also to my old roommate. And then my old roommate got his current roommates to read it. Um, and then at my birthday, it was all that they were talking about. So one of his current roommates got me a copy for my birthday, and I have been working my way through it. And Kat also now has a copy. So um, we're forming a little uh, three-body problem cult down here in Austin, if anybody wants to shoot us <laughs> an email about it. Unusually for me, uh, after last week, where I had no movies to talk about, I did see a couple of things this week, including something in a movie theater? Theater? I went in person, and I saw a giant... I saw beautiful faces, large. But I will, before I get to that, say, uh, to keep an update for our listeners on my X-Files progress, I am now six episodes away from the end of season five, at which point we will watch the movie... So by the next time uh, we record this podcast, I will have the movie to talk about as well. Upcoming publication uh, on the website, I wrote a 3,000-word review of the film A Glitch in the Matrix because I saw it and it fucking infuriated me. <laughs> I'm going to link that review in the show notes for this episode because it is a great, exciting, thrilling read. Uh <laughs> Thank you. That is so, that's so nice. Fabulous takedown. Rodney Asher is the director of it, who previously directed Room 237, which uh, Brennan and I were briefly talking about off mic earlier before you joined us, Ali. Yeah. I, are you familiar with it? And that's the one with all the conspiracy theories, right? Yes, about yeah. the shining. Okay, and, yes. You know, Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing and yes. all other sorts of, you know, there's a minotaur in the labyrinth because there's not yes. a labyrinth in the book and blah, blah, there's blah. There's not a labyrinth in the book, no. But it was better yeah. to change it to a labyrinth, in my opinion. Yeah, it's hard to make hedges uh, frightening without forming them into a maze. Um, <laughs> it works on the page and it wouldn't work on the screen. And I think the only reason it works on a page is that it's menacing a child. <laughs> I although I have to say the book did terrify me. Not gonna lie, I was horrified watching, reading, and watching both things. But yeah, D does it not terrorize Jack at any point? Oh, it might. The first time the hedges move, I think they're threatening him, or he oh, okay. thinks that they're moving. But he also is like, oh, it went from a rabbit shape to like a, a wolf shape or some other such nonsense. But yeah. Swamp books. Books. <laughs> books. Welcome to the book swamp. They're all waterlogged and slimy. I was going to say, I don't, I don't know if I like the idea of swamp books, but book <laughs> swamp I could get into. Book swamp. <laughs> I don't want to get too into repeating myself by saying anything here in the podcast that you can't read in the review that uh, Brandon is going to link. What I will say is that what happened is I am trying to watch some 2021 films so I can be properly informed and have a top 10 list. I acquired some, and A Glitch in the Matrix is literally the first one 
alphabetically on my computer because it doesn't do glitch in the matrix comma a it's a space glitch in the matrix and therefore it was the first and it doesn't bode well for what the rest of my viewing experience is going to be <laughs> oh, no. a couple things that i'll say to repeat myself and then brandon if you have any questions any follow-up questions about the review um i'm happy to provide them i'd say that the film is uh negligent i say that it's kind of uh dangerous it basically is about the simulation hypothesis alley you know like we were just talking yeah, about before yeah. where uh he interviews some unwell people who give their thoughts on whether or not we live in a simulation so basically the same thing as rude 237 but simulation theory yeah it's a lot of people who very clearly need psychiatric help and for them it's like oh when i was a kid i thought that these long car trips that i took with my father were so that they this like nebulously referred to they would have time to like change the background or put in new characters for us to interact with and when we moved to a smaller town when i was a child it was so that they, you know, wouldn't have to use so much processing power to render the other people in my town. It's not simply that these are people who are speculating about the possibility that we live or might live in a simulation, because whether or not we do is unprovable. It requires faith, just as you would have to have faith in any kind of religious idea. The whole point of faith is that it cannot be empirically proven. We cannot empirically prove or disprove whether or not we live in a simulation. So whenever scientists are asked about this, they often say, well, scientifically, we can't disprove it. And what this film basically does is take all of that out of context, pair it with this talk that Philip K. Dick gave in France in the 70s, where he, after some kind of delusional psychotic break, uh, basically was like, all of my novels are real. All of them really happened in alternate dimensions. I did not imagine these worlds. These worlds exist. And, you know, respect to the man for his work, but like, uh, it really strikes me as, you know, if you were to watch that and then think, oh, this is something about which I should frame my conception of reality, then you also need help. Um, to any of our listeners out there, maybe talk to a doctor. Now, whether or not this theory or hypothesis is valid is completely you know, up to the listener, it's up to what you choose to place your faith in, it's up to whether you embrace only what can be empirically proven to be true, or empirically proven to exist. And so whenever you're talking about God or anything like that, that also can't be empirically proven, it also requires faith. And the danger of this film is that it treats it as a scientific accuracy. You know, we here's a clip from Neil deGrasse Tyson saying, "Yeah, we live in a simulation." It's like, no, that's not that's not what he said. But when you take all these things together and make them part of one text, it presents this as if it's a, a reality. And when we talk about something that is like an evangelical tool that has these same concepts, but instead of it getting trying to convince you of the simulation hypothesis, it's trying to convince you of you know, that Christ is the savior or that we are reborn on a wheel of karma, they always explicitly identify it as this is true, but you have to take it on faith. Whereas this is like, this is true. Trust us. This guy worked at Chili's and did nothing but go to work 
and play video games for two years. And that helped him realize that we live in a simulation. That's not science. At no point do they interview any skeptics. They don't interview any theologians other than those who are already convinced of the simulation hypothesis. They don't interview any psychologists who could tell us about any of the various ways, you know, uh, they don't go to like a, an Oliver Sacks type academic who could say, yes, there are people who believe this clearly, not merely that it's a possible way to describe the existence we live in, but is that way. And here is the here are the parts of their brain that are malfunctioning, right? None of that happens. And it has a very dangerous editorial tone when there are characters who talk about how some people are player characters or real characters and how some people are NPCs. It's not condemnatory of that, even though that is like a core key component of most racist ideologies and white supremacy in particular, which, you know, basically essentially posits that some people are more real than others or some people are better than others. It's just bad. It's bad all the way down. And that's without even getting into how much it sucks Elon Musk's dick. And I, I w- I'll let you read that bit for yourself, listener. But it's really troubling. I do have a question about the editorializing aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Because I really did enjoy Room 237 and The Nightmare, which was Asher's movie about sleep paralysis. And what I really liked about those movies in particular was that there was no editorializing at all. It was just... I don't even think you heard the questions or heard the documentarian's voice or any voiceover in any way. It was just people with these highly specific theories talking unchecked and like illustrated. Now, I don't think that that kind of like rampant conspiracy theory babble would be as interesting to me now after the last five or six years of like that kind of political rhetoric becoming mainstream, but just that sort of fringe coast to coast am unedited speak was really interesting and from what it sounds like there's more supplementary material here that's like kind of like proving not proving but kind of like laying out the roadmap of what they're talking about not just letting them talk for themselves which sounds way less interesting there is a lot of talking for themselves it's about like even without like, there is no way to make a documentary without an editorial tone at all true it's true all, all creation is political in, in its way. What you choose to say, what you choose not to say, how you choose to organize it. The way that as a filmmaker you understand filmic language and how you choose to lay out these things together and lay them in a sequence that creates a narrative out of nothing, right? That's like the Kuleshov effect. Here's a thing and here's a face and here's a thing and everything that you feel about it is internal. It has nothing to do with what it's created inside not in the camera and so room 237 has a lot to say politically that i think is um i think i found fascinating when it first came out which is like almost almost if not at least 10 years ago now right yeah but back then there wasn't you know we didn't have people (laughs) it doesn't matter if someone in congress saw room 237 and thought huh, a minotaur in the labyrinth. But we do have people in Congress right now who believe in... Jewish space lasers. Jewish space lasers <laughs> and other uh, various yeah. conspiracies that have no basis in reality. That, in fact, distract from actual like problems that we're having. 
there uh, there is not a satanic cabal of blood drinking pedophiles but there are highly powered people who do engage in sex trafficking and as long as we're stuck talking about fucking blood drinking and adrenochrome then we're not actually tackling the problem of why brian singer isn't in prison right now but the thing is, like, in Room 237, I never got the sense that he believed all those things because if that were true, they, would, they couldn't all exist together. Like, yes. you have, like, 12 different people with 12 different theories of what that movie's doing, and they can't all coexist. I never thought the movie was about how any of those things were true, but it was more about, like, how powerful The Shining is for being able to evoke that strong of an intellectual reaction from people. That's certainly a valid interpretation of that text. Like I said, it's been so long, I can't speak to it without rewatching it. But as far as there being a presentation of multiple ideas that cannot coexist together, there is nothing about any of the people who are interviewed and their conceptions of the simulation hypothesis that is contradictory at all. So it is, it is multiple people who are experiencing similar ideologies and then the occasional like reporter or scientist who's like yeah this is actually plato's cave you know this is actually something that we that's not new as a concept of our reality but then you know that same psychologist or uh, it's not there's no psychologist there's there's no one in the mental health field in this movie but that same ai theorist might then start talking about um, the Mandela effect. There's no criticism of the concept of the Mandela effect at all. It's, you know, oh, Philip K. Dick, if he were alive today, would be surprised by how many people actually do concur with him that it's possible to realize or remember unrealized or or forgotten worlds. You know, (laughs) and then it's like, here's a bunch of you know, here's here's a place where TV Guide misspelled Berenstein Bears with an E-I-N one time in like the 80s. And that's definitive proof that Berenstein Bears have, were once spelled with an E instead of an A, right? And it's concerning to me, and it has been for a long time, that in our society there are people who trust their own faulty memories more than an objective reality it doesn't yes. matter how many times you can prove to someone that there is not a movie starring uh, uh sinbad called shazam there are people who kind of half remember kazam they put that all together they see somebody's photoshopped version of that vhs <laughs> somebody's photoshopped vhs cover of that unreal movie and then it sticks with them forever and I'm not like a conspiracy theorist who's going to say that all of that is a psyop, right? To make people's minds more malleable. But we do know even now that people's use of social media does change. It's changing the way that people conceive of things. It's changing the way that people remember things. It's changing the way that people think. And there are organizations that have found ways to tap into that and do social engineering as demonstrated by the radicalization of our parents' generation that we have seen as they have used Facebook in the past five or 10 years. And Mm -hmm. to act as someone who is saying, I'm a documentarian of this glitch in the matrix rather than making it explicit that you're documenting the beliefs of these people. And then also providing counter arguments or counter examples or a scientist explaining why people experience these gaps and flaws in their memory 
that they then become defensive about instead of just saying, oh, it's the Mandela effect because some people remembered Mandela dying in prison. It's like, yeah, those people have faulty memories. Because, okay, Walter Chow, the film critic Walter Chow, tweeted something this week uh, where he had written something about Alien and then Bishop. Uh, Lance Henriksen. Lance Henriksen had uh, expressed positive opinions opinions about it on Twitter. And I was like, oh, I was positive that Lance Henriksen was dead. I was sure that he had died sometime recently. And I looked it up. I was like, oh, I guess I just was thinking about Harry Dean Stanton dying. And in my mind, my flawed meat brain, I mixed that up with Lance Henriksen and thought he was dead too. Never for a moment did I have the hubris to think that my memory of, of, of Lance Henriksen having died Never did I have the pride, the sheer fucking hubris to think that that was that I had like changed realities. I was like, oh, no, I guess I had a faulty memory because memory is faulty. And I have a meat I have meat with electricity inside it inside my skull. <laughs> <laughs> this is 100 percent why I said at the beginning that I hate this theory, the simulation theory. It's because of things like this where it's like. Number one, I I feel very, like, uh, trust no one. Um, I feel like that line stuck with me from the X-Files too much throughout my whole life. But, like, <laughs> the idea of memory being key to everything, like, it's so real because, I, I don't know, I come from a family of, like, crazy people. Sorry, family, if you're listening, you're crazy people. And just the way <laughs> their minds work, I'm like, no, like... That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Meat electricity is real faulty. And at its core, what the simulation hypothesis is, is intelligent design with extra steps. It posits that the universe that we live in has a guiding hand, that it was created by an intelligent designer. And again... It, it, I have no, I have no desire to denigrate people of faith who do not use that faith to harm others. If that is what brings you comfort, if that's what you choose to believe, and you don't use it to belittle other people, deprive them of their freedoms, whatever, believe what you want to believe. You know, let let your heart follow the god of your choice. But what the simulation hypothesis is is just that, with extra steps, but and to present it as being somehow scientifically verifiable mocks and belittles and weakens scientific progress in our understanding of our universe and to change tax really quickly i also <laughs> went and saw black widow <laughs> <laughs> which you had a much more positive experience with the most i way. did i'm sorry I, did you have any more questions about the movie <laughs> no it, it sounds like you know rodney asher hasn't changed but the world has uh and you know a lot of the stuff that like people were calling him irresponsible for a few years ago, I was like, I don't know about all that. But with this topic at this time, uh, sounds about right. Sounds like he might have crossed the line by now. Uh, <laughs> I'm still gonna watch it because I can't like all that stuff is fascinating to me, um, and I want to have an opinion on it. <laughs> I want to see. I want to see it for myself, even if I come out with the same like strongly negative reaction. Fair enough. You know, Veronica Cartwright was also in Alien in 1979, and she was just had her introduction in the recent X-Files episodes that I've been watching. That doesn't mean anything, though. It just, it's just a coincidence. 
It's not it's not a glitch in the Matrix. I would like to recommend a movie to you that's like similar but like science based that I thought was fascinating and terrifying, uh, called Hunting for Hedonia. Okay. Um and it's about deep brain stimulation. And it's about basically um implants in the human brain that through electronic stimulation can change behavior and perception of reality. It was like research that was originally done in the 50s in New Orleans and uh, was used for some really evil shit. And then like Mm. recently, Elon Musk types have been like reviving it uh, for like recreational drug use and like other things, sometimes for good, like sometimes to like fix like really, you know, destructive behavioral patterns, but other times for like just terrifying, like future disruptor bullshit. And I found that movie like, you know. It got my mind working in the same way that it sounds like this one does for people, but um, it, it was a lot more science-based and like evidence-based and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, less irresponsible and talked about both sides of the issue. I will say one of the people that's interviewed, uh, Brother Leo Mistwood, uh, his revelation or one of his revelations over the course of his life came as a result of going into a sensory deprivation chamber, which I have done and I recommend. If you can get a group on, go and do it. I did it for my birthday in May 2016. And there is a part of me that is still forever hoping that um, any moment now I'm going to I'm going to hear that beep and realize that the past five years of misery have all been only in my mind. (laughs) Uh, In fact, the friend that I mentioned earlier, who was the first to read uh, the three body problem, he went with me when we did it for my birthday uh, five years ago. And for for years after that, every once in a while, I would just lean over to him and be like, Alfred, Alfred, it's time to get out. And the longer it had been, the funnier it became. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, I keep saying I'm going to talk about Black Widow and then don't. Uh, That one just posted today. So I was talking to my friend that I saw it with just a couple of hours ago before we started recording. And she asked how I came out in my review. And I talked about how even though it's pretty formulaic, it's still a lot of fun, and I had a blast watching it. And so I thought I would share her thoughts with you based on what she had to say after I told her what I had written about. Uh, she feels that it could definitively be one of the ones that's watched without any prior Marvel knowledge, that yes. it actually works really well as a completely standalone feature. Even without any kind of knowledge from having seen the others, you could see Black Widow, in her opinion. Um, she noticed that there were a couple of Scarlett Johansson ass shots really early in the film, but then there weren't any after that. And so she is very happy that Scarlett Johansson apparently uh, appears to be at the point in her career where she can determine how many ass shots they're going to do and for (laughs) how long and get them out of the way early on. I'll also say it's a two and a half hour movie, which I am not ever bothered by. But we went and saw it at noon, and when we got out of the theater, you know, after the previews and, you know, watching the post-credits, and then, of course, going to the, you know, emptying your your very full bladder, we got in the car, and she was like, God, how long was that movie? I was like, yeah, it's two and a half hours. And she said, oh, it didn't feel like it at all. It doesn't feel like it at all. So even for someone who is generally apathetic about the Marvel movies, thinks that most of them are not very good, she thought that this one was great two and a half hours blew by just completely breezed by for her she found the sisterhood elements uh, between natasha and yelena even though she said i don't have a sister i felt that 
And uh, we also think that um, whoever it was that was in charge of de-aging Rachel Vice got a real easy paycheck because (laughs) (laughs) she does not look that different than she did in 1995. She is a beautiful woman. She looks great. I'm in for the Florence Pugh of it all myself. I think if I watch the movie, it'll be for her. We talked about how much we like her because Amy March is a fucking bitch. All right. Amy March is a horror is a very difficult character to like. She burns Joe's manuscript. I'm sorry. I should watch. Unforgivable. Unforgivable. And yet Florence Pugh manages to make that character likable. So in this house, we support her and we respect her decision to date Zach Braff and hope that she changes her mind soon. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, she's a grown woman. It's her life, but we hope it changes sooner than later. (laughs) Brandon, what what about you? (laughs) What have you been watching? Yeah, what have you been watching, Brandon? I have some like continuations of conversations we've had on the show already. Much like Boomer going through the X-Files, I watched a sci-fi show I should have seen a while ago. I watched Cowboy Bebop. Oh, Oh, you already finished it. I it was not that much. I started watching right? it recently, like rewatching it again. I there really also aren't that many started episodes. watching it. Um, oh, okay. With, during, Coincidence? During the past six months. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. I want to believe. What are the chances? It's all on Hulu. Uh, <laughs> pretty widely <laughs> yeah. available. But. I was going to say, it's, it's out there. It's good. The truth is out there. If you like that, you would like Farscape. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I uh, I did enjoy it. Um, I didn't care for the Spike versus Vicious like overarching storyline mm. thing that was kind of dragged out. But like honestly, that's never my favorite mode of television anyway. Like I don't like the overarching X Files mystery as much as I like the Monster of the Week episodes either. And Cowboy Bebop had a great run of like individual self-contained episodes that I thought were like just great television. Uh, in particular, the alien uh, riff with the fridge mold that goes. Oh yeah, classic mm-hmm. TV, like just fantastic stuff. And there are a few others I would point out as well. Um, and I wrapped the whole thing up with Cowboy Bebop the movie from two thousand and one. And what I liked about it is it dials the clock back a few episodes. Like it's not after the series wraps up. It kind of right. couldn't be because it's ultimately a tragedy, uh, but. It avoids the Spike Vicious saga altogether and just does this sort of like one-off self-contained episode, which is my favorite mode of the show. And there were a lot of things to be impressed by in just its budget. Like, that show is very oddly slapped together in a lot of ways. You could tell some of the like CG and hand-drawn animation aren't melded together correctly because it was kind of done in a rush. And a lot of the character dynamics are the same way as well like ein and edward in particular don't have a full place in the crew on the show like they should be doing all this like background hacker stuff especially ein is like not given their full due um as like a valuable member of the crew and in the movie like they actually have like a place in like solving all these like bounty missions bounty hunter crew and in the same respect, the animation itself, um, you could tell they had way more money and way more time to like realize the full vision of like what all that CG intrusion into the traditional hand-drawn stuff is supposed to look like. So I don't know. It wasn't like a great 
episode of the show, mostly because it's over two hours long, which it really does not need to be. Like they could have trimmed a good like forty minutes off of it. It is Halloween themed though, which I found adorable. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the clim- the climax is at like a Macy's Day Parade type event uh, with like a bunch of giant jack-o'-lanterns instead of like the, the normal floats, um, the balloon floats. I don't know. I-, I thought it was a decent episode of the show with a good summation of what it would look like if they had all the money and all the time they wanted to play with it while they were making the show. Oddly, though, that one is not available on Hulu or online for free. I had to get it through it's the library. Not, yeah. I actually am caught up to the point where the film takes place and I've paused it because I want to watch the film and then finish the series. Right. So I have not actually finished the show in its entirety. I've only seen up to the point where the movie takes place. It's uh, it's pretty self-contained, but I, I don't think that's a bad idea because there are things that happen after that, like changes the dynamics of the crew forever. Right. They dial it back just enough to like keep the main thrust of the show. It's kind of weird, like, the show itself, you don't even get the full crew working together for maybe the first five or six episodes yeah. out of, like, 20-something yeah. total. <laughs> it's like So maybe there's, like, a third of the show where everything's actually functioning correctly. It's a weird structure, but I kind of felt like they were just kind of figuring things out on the fly, uh, which is really the only thing I would really recommend the movie for is, like, them kind of having all the, like, time and money to breathe and, like, actually do things correctly. But I don't know, there's probably about four or five different episodes of the show that I thought were, like, absolutely fantastic, and the rest I thought was pretty good. I really liked the episode where they have to track down a beta player. Oh, yes, yes! I think that one was my favorite. Although, now that you mention that, it does remind me that yesterday when I was at the theater, in the hallway of the uh, Alamo Draft House that I go to, I won't say where, because I'm I live in fear of being doxxed. They will <laughs> occasionally just be like projecting a movie onto the wall with no sound. Just, you know, while you're walking through the hall, there's something on. And what was on yesterday, as I was coming out of the restroom, I was like, this looks familiar. I know what this is. And I was like, is this on your mark? And then it's like, no, it can't be because, you know, it's basically forbidden to have that. Right. We, I wrote about it many, many years ago when we did Girl Walk All Day for Movie of the Month. It's the Lost Miyazaki, Miyazaki. music video. Um, but that's what it was. I don't know how they got a hold of it. But <laughs> they were projecting On Your Mark onto the wall at the redacted Alamo. So uh, that was neat. That's very cool. Yeah, that is cool. Um, and after we watched Baccarat last episode, I watched an Indian movie, um, a Tamil language film. So it's like South India movie industry. Um, I think it's called Hollywood instead of Bollywood. I, I watch a lot of these like over the top like action epics from India. Mm-hmm. I really like the trashy ones. I like the ones like I feel like they really go over the top in a way with their money and their ideas that like even the Fast and the Furious movies look really timid by comparison. <laughs> but this one I watched um, close after Baccarat. It's called Karnan. K A R N A N. Um, and it's on Amazon Prime right now. And it reminded me so much of Baccarat and it's like story, but in a more um, traditional like action hero kind of way. Like all the things I was saying last time that Baccarat didn't do with Lunga, um, this movie does with the titular Karnan, its, its hero. It's basically this like small town in the middle of nowhere that has been sort of isolated by the police and by like the wealthier towns nearby. And they're very vulnerable. Like they can't take the women 
want to take a bus to the university to learn and like you know develop themselves like intellectually and like professionally and all the cops and the rich people like won't let them leave town on a bus so like mm. one of the first things that Karnan has to do is like fight for a bus stop to be uh established nearby so like the women can go to university and basically it all culminates with the cops kidnapping all of the elders of the village and beating them and leaving them to die on like a hot roof Karnan goes and rescues them from the police station, and then the cops come to the town for a big Baccarat-style showdown, where Karnan smites them all with a giant fucking sword. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. The village is like main defense mechanism is this one sword that's like passed around to like the hero who deserves to wield it. And uh, this like folk hero character emerges. He's like a explosively angry person and doesn't know what to do with all this like political fury he has. Um, and then he like really comes together with that sword. That's where he like finds himself and like kills the main cop baddie with it. So if you really want to see like a really straightforward, a little boneheaded version of Baccarat that's like not as uh, nuanced and uh you know the the payoff is watching a cop getting slain with a giant fucking sword. Um, <laughs> I really like that movie a lot. I need a giant sword for all my political anger and also I'm sold. We start with a square, which is really a head-on view of a cube which begins to rotate. Our first impression of a rotating three cube is that of squares sliding. This is the revolving door illusion. If we rotate the three-dimensional cube about a different axis, we get parallelograms and rectangles, images that we readily interpret as the shadows of a rotating three-dimensional cube. But now we rotate in four-dimensional space. Welcome back, dear listener. This week, (laughs) we return to the world of cubes. Previously, we discussed 1997's Cube, starring Nicole DeBoer and some other people. And this week, we watched Cube 2 Hypercube, as well as the prequel, Cube Zero. Cube 2 is not simply entitled Hypercube. It does, in fact, take place in a Tesseract or a Hypercube. Uh, Specifically, it takes place in a Tesseract. Uh, They don't specify this in the movie, but just to make sure we don't get any angry emails about it. All Tesseracts are Hypercubes, but not all Hypercubes are Tesseracts. Hypercubes that are tesseracts specifically exist in four dimensions however there are hypercubes that theoretically exist in five six and more as we open in hypercube we follow the adventures of a young blonde woman who meets several people and they get sliced diced slowed down sped up poisoned eaten and duplicated julienne <laughs> duplicated and julienne <laughs> I guess I'll go ahead and say that Cube Zero, as a prequel, is about a man who is a technician who works on an earlier version of the Cube, along with an older uh, colleague of his. They previously had a couple of other people who worked with them who have now disappeared, and as we later learn, are in the Cube. We learn more about uh, why the Cube exists, which I know when we first talked about the original Cube, Cube. Brandon, you didn't seem very interested in learning about the cube, and I understood that, but 
I do want to hear your thoughts now that we know more about its operation. But I guess I'll first ask, what did everybody think about Cube 2 Hypercube? So I don't think I was afraid of the cube enough in Cube 2 Hypercube. <laughs> really? I'm just going to say it. Like, I think the cube in Cube scared me. I think the cube in Cube 2 Hypercube just, you know, it it's a collapsing time loop. So anytime you got one of those going on, I'm just like, oh, well, okay. You know, it's not really <laughs> frightening to me to be in a collapsing time loop that much, honestly. And well, I feel weird saying that. The kills are a lot less physical, right? Because yes. like the first one will slice and dice and crush you. The second one you are more likely to be killed by an iTunes visualizer. Exactly. Like, there are all these like computer animated geometrical shapes that sometimes fly around the room, sometimes turn into these like posts that sweep in from the side to like knock your head off. Very unkind geometry going on. It's not tactile in the same way that the first one is. Yeah. So I could see that being less scary. Yeah, it's it's not as scary to me. And I will say the original cube cube uh featured at least initially people who were not immediately it was not immediately clear why they were there they could have been anyone sleeping in their homes taken for no reason and even though in this film they do have that same scene where they're like i worked at a hospital in maine and i was at a movie premiere and i'm a lawyer and i design video games it is much clearer from much earlier on that the people who are in the cube are at least somehow tangentially related to Aizen, the company that, I guess, designed the cube, created the cube, filled it full of air, or filled it full of time, like a like a bike tire. I will admit, I don't really understand uh, the time loop collapse element of Cube 2 Hypercube, but um, it is much clearer from earlier on that everyone there is there for a reason, which we learn more slowly in Cube. Cube. Although we didn't really learn in Cube Cube, like the reason for everybody being there. We just had to speculate. So I was already talking about how I was right about the Cube just being a place to put people that this group did not want. So it's, it's interesting to see it in action and uh, more nuanced personally i think that made it less interesting for me personally <laughs> like you were correct but the more they hammer that home and like the more that becomes like a solid explanation for the existence of this impossible thing uh i was just like okay uh, can we get back to the traps <laughs> i don't really care about why the cube is there i don't care about where all these people came from i just want to see traps it's like the one exciting thing this uh, entire series has going for it, and it like is so frustrating because it doesn't want to deliver on that thing. It tries so hard to get around actually showing traps on the screen. Brandon, do you do you like Saw? Do you like the Saw movies? Like I I, I don't really have much interest in them. I really liked last time off mic about the Saw oh movies, my god so. we're in the cube, <laughs> time is collapsing. I did like um, Escape Room from a few years ago. Uh, I think that's like my perfect version of this, where there is a little bit of like, who put us here? Like, how do we escape this mysterious puzzle box? But um, so much of the movie is about the mechanisms of the traps themselves and like the logistics of escaping them and uh, 
the gruesome details when that does not work out. And there's a sequel coming to that soon that I'm excited to watch. I just, I'm eternally frustrated by this series because it's like almost good. It's like almost what I want out of it and it just withholds and like gets distracted by things that I, I can't connect with. I think I mentioned last time that I remembered Hypercube being the one I liked the least back whenever I, you know, I've seen Cube, the Cube, like probably, I don't know, 20 times because it was constantly on television when I was younger. And then I remember when Cube 2 Hypercube came out, like to the uh, home video slash television market it being very heavily advertised on the sci-fi channels. It was like a big deal. Oh, Friday night sci-fi channel movie. We're going to show cube. And then the, the world premiere of cube Two hypercube. And (laughs) I was both young enough and like unfamiliar enough with the mathematical mechanics of it, that it didn't make any sense to me. Um, I felt very frustrated by the ending of it, which spoiler alert, Someone escape. This is the only one in which someone escapes the cube. We we should say that this is the only one in which someone escapes the Wait. cube, and then she is immediately killed. Wait, no! In the first one, somebody escapes the cube. We don't see what happens. We though. don't Just see yeah. what happens. And cube yeah. zero seems to indicate that even if you escape the cube, then you have to answer <laughs> yeah. answer these riddles three. No, you have to answer like a question, and then. Uh, not to skip ahead too much, but listener, uh, whenever the someone gets to the like <laughs> mudroom antechamber of the cube in cube zero, they have to answer a question posed by the technicians, which is, do you believe in God? And then they say no, and then they're burned without ever escaping the cube, which the younger technician asks, what happens if they say yes? And we learn that no one ever has. once you've made it through the cube it completely shatters your uh any possible faith that you could have in a just and loving god which i will say uh when we get to cube zero the the cube zero uh (laughs) it's it's very heavily informed by the war on terror i think um in a way that i oh yeah that's solidly after saw like that's in that torture porn post 9-11 era of filmmaking where they're like, well, we were doing that before. This was a trend. We need to like slap one more together. Yeah. Um, and that's when you yeah. start getting into like the guilt of the responsibility of like putting people through this. And that's why you like take that step remove and you watch someone like basically drone strike people in the cube uh, from an office space. One of the things that I wanted to to touch on is that the cast of Cube, the Cube was mostly unknowns, but we had Nicole DeBoer and a couple of other people who eventually went on to greater fame. There's really only two people in this that I recognized. Uh, Our lead, Kate, is played by Kari Matchett, or maybe it's Carrie Matchett, who I know as the wife of Timothy Hutton's character on the television show Leverage. I looked it up. She's only in four episodes, but she does have a, she has a pretty profound impact narratively on the whole show. And of course, uh, Garant Wynn Davies, who I assume everyone remembers as television's Forever Night. I have no idea what that is. Nope. <laughs> uh, Forever Night was an early 90s television show about a, a vampire detective. Um, <laughs> it was one of the earliest mm. ones of those where the, the man who plays Simon, the private detective in this film, 
what plays Nick Knight, who was a was a kind, <laughs> like a kind. He was like a a, a middle ages knight who was turned into a vampire, and now in the present day, he like solves mysteries. This sounds great. Is it's it was very influential on like the Highlander show, as well as obviously Angel. Angel and, and Forever Night are very similar. And what year was this from again? Sorry. I want to say 92 to 95. Oh, oh wow. you know what's interesting? Like, uh, the show that sounds a lot like that, that I love from that era, is the old Beauty and the Beast Beauty show and the Beast? Hamilton. I knew it. I knew it. I knew you were going to say it. I love you. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love that show so much. So anyway. This is just for you and me, but it even has a very similar theme uh, where in the last season, you know, it has two seasons where it's, you know, the show that you're accustomed to. And then suddenly there's a change in the cast in the third season, just like on Beauty and the Beast, where suddenly mm-hmm. it's a brand new lady lead. Because, you know, Linda Hamilton, I guess, I don't know why she left Beauty and the Beast. I don't know if it was because she was going to do T2 or if she just was bored. I don't know. But yes, they are similar. In my mind, they they occupy the same shelf in the in the memory <laughs> palace of my mind. But uh, there are not as many people that you would recognize in this. Although Matthew Ferguson, who plays the the game developer character, he was on the the Femme Nikita television show, which I've never seen, but remember existing. And he was also in a uh, Lilies. Oh, I guess that's a connection. He was in the the queer drama film lilies which is about everyone in the film is played by a man even if the character is a woman because the framing device is that a man who has been imprisoned falsely his former lover who is now a priest is coming around and they're going to do like a whole conscience of the king thing where they're it's all of these male prisoners putting on a pantomime of these two men's former love and the other He's like the young, one of the young lovers, and the other one is played by Jason Cadieu, who was also on Mission Genesis with Nicole de Boer, who was in Cube, one the Cube. <laughs> there's the there's your connection. I uh, I gotta say the rooms in this movie are inventive, like maybe even more inventive than the first one, but the acting in general is way worse. Oh, like oh, by a long shot, so bad. Yes. <laughs> The only character I had any fun with was the um, chipper older woman with dementia. Yes, Miss Paley. She is just as broad as everyone else, but at least is fun to watch. Like uh, her continued optimism and like cheery attitude in the cube uh, was actually amusing to me. Yes. Um, everyone else was just awkwardly bad. I don't know. There was something that happened when I first started watching it, where I was like, "Oh no." Oh no, these performances are terrible. They're even worse than I remember. And then after 15 minutes, I was like, oh, why? Everybody's better, I guess. And then I paused it because Kat came over and she was like, no, go ahead and finish your movie. And I resumed it playing and everyone's acting was bad again. So I don't know if that just (laughs) says something about me, where if the acting is bad after a certain period of time, I just go with it. But if you're saying that it was bad all the way through, that lends credence to that uh, understanding of uh, myself. I could see acclimating to it because the like oh, definitely. ideas are so big and so overpowering. Everything has to be explained with like paragraphs of dialogue. <laughs> and charts. I have to draw you a diagram. Right. 
But like, I don't know. It, you don't have to explain a room that um, has wires in it that chops you into meat cubes. Like that is just easily understood. But like a room where time runs way slower and then way faster relative to the next room, so that you age hundreds of years while someone else is like being duplicated into like multiple dimensions, and then like so on and so on. Like every room is overcomplicated in a way that like it's easy to get swept up in the ideas of the thing without focusing on how atrocious the acting is, which I don't think it gets any better. <laughs> I think it kind of stays equally bad throughout. Oh yeah, it definitely does. At least your aunt Wien Davies gets to like ham it up though. He's like, I'm going to eat all of you. Give me your watches. Oh my gosh. Yes. I did like the multiple timelines, like, um, piling up with him. Remember that movie Triangle? Yes, that's exactly what I thought. I was like, Triangle. But yeah, like, in general, this is the type of sequel I usually want from a movie. I want it to, like, go way bigger in its ideas and, like, really just, like, let loose. <laughs> and uh, just, you know, not worry about grounding anything because, you know, the premise is kind of already understood with the audience. You don't really have to, like, do any groundwork. And this does all that. It's just the traps lack any kind of, like we were saying earlier, any kind of like tactile danger to them. And the performances don't feel like real people at any point whatsoever. And it doubles down on like the theoretical math talk from the first one <laughs> to such an absurd degree where it's just like hard for me to like care what anyone is saying after a while. Uh, I, I find these movies so frustrating because I'm so close to enjoying them, uh, just like just outside of uh, unlocking the trap. It's the cube trap for you. Yep. I, I feel like I am trapped by these movies. I keep uh, going in with enthusiasm and, and optimism and like leaving like frustrated. Well, the good news is um, this is the last there of them no more. Until, <laughs> until the remake, the Japanese remake comes out, whenever that is. And I'm totally into that. I want to see it. Yeah. I'm <laughs> oh, also no. very excited. Oh, yeah, Allie, am... It's going to happen. I, well, I'm just saying, oh, no, to Brandon being excited about it. I'm like, oh, no, yeah. he's already trapped. He's <laughs> already gotten. already trapped. That's what's kind of fun about Cube Zero as an idea. Like, on its face, the idea of uh, showing the world outside of the cube is not interesting. Like, Yes. But I like the idea that you escape it, and it is like an escape room where, like, you just go into another puzzle. Like that bureaucratic room where they're observing the people in the cube is just an extension of the cube itself. Like the action hasn't yes. become free or gone anywhere or done anything. Like they're still part of the game. I find that kind of a fun existential terror in general. Yes. In Cube Zero, it also is a hypercube because it's a cube within a cube. Yes, it was a hypercube. You're right. <laughs> So oh I, I guess henceforth we'll call it Cube Zero, the Hypercube. No, um, <laughs> even whenever I was saying that we should do this, I knew that this was not a movie that I necessarily uh, liked. I saw it once when I was young, when it had its Sci-Fi Channel world premiere. And then while I was living with my old roommate, who loves math, has a PhD in pure mathematics, has explained many of the higher concepts of math to me. Uh, although, like I think I've said before, Anytime he ever explained something to me and I understood it, it made me fear for my mortal soul. This one is his favorite. And I think that it is because of how math heavy it is. I agree that all of the performances, I guess, I got used to it, but I did really like uh, Carrie Matchett. I, I liked her a lot. She seemed very like comforting and human. 
but to the point where when she had her as they say in your world brand in her face heel turn you know it's <laughs> like oh okay and i even though it's it's pretty cliche i did enjoy the whole um oh i'm i'm a blind teenager just kidding i'm the world's best hacker i'm the best <laughs> hacker in the world i created this hypercube in my mind yeah. that was great I guess just for both of these, it's amazing how much you can see the influence of the Matrix, honestly. I was just amazed watching both of them. Because, so here's background on that. I didn't watch the Matrix movies until very recently. So for me, they're very fresh in my mind. And I'm just like, wow, wow, the Matrix really did just like influence this whole whole genre of movies and aesthetics and you know i don't mind it i don't mind it what would you say is the biggest change between cube the cube and cube Two hypercube that that shows like a matrix influence as far as cube to hypercube is concerned it's it's very much like a this is such a clean slate like empty atmosphere sort of thing like in the matrix when they're in the whole digital you can learn anything whatever you know what i'm saying like it's such like a blank slate that white void yeah it's like a white void that you don't you don't really see in a lot of movies in that like whole sort of futuristic style the clean lines and then of course you know the idea that like all sci-fi movies need to have that like blend of CG and real life and not all of them pull it off very well. It in that way it reminded me, but I think more so Cube Zero, obviously. I'm I'm sure we can all see like the whole dingy desk job. Oh yeah. Everything Matrix connection. But anyway, we can go we can go to, to the prequel now if well, that's an excellent bridge to it. Just like the yeah. whenever the room resets, whenever the cube resets to <laughs> everything in its original position, and there's the bridge out of it. One thing that I will say, Barbara Gordon, not Batgirl, but the actress playing Mrs. Paley, the, the older theoretical mathematician in Cube 2 Hypercube, a lot of the acting is bad, and no, but no one really seems to be having a lot of fun other than her. Whereas when we get to Cube mm-hmm. Zero and we meet Jax, that guy is having fun. He is enjoying Oh, he's having a blast. He is having a blast in this movie. Is that the evil supervisor? Yeah, yeah. the evil supervisor with the artificial okay. eye, who's basically, yeah. it made, he's giving real strong um, Stacy Keach in <laughs> class of 1999 vibes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just like, har, har, I'm going to speak with a weird accent and I'm going to act kind of weird, like a, like a weird time displaced cockney man. And I'm going to intentionally mispronounce your name. And I'm a, I'm a mad fucking genius. Loved it. Loved every moment that he was on screen, even though he was the villain. A shame there was no shot of him. Um, eating a banana essentially while making eye contact with the camera or drinking a glass of milk (laughs) yeah (laughs) fucked up unwholesome activities i think that their visual representation of the cube and tying that to our main character wins chess abilities i think that they they pulled that off well i really enjoyed jacks i loved everything about that I, i what is missing though is in the original cube cube it doesn't seem like it takes place in some distant future. 
or even the not too distant future. And nothing really seems to be anything that's impossible, even by the level of technology of 1997, right? Nothing about it seems crazy futuristic to the people involved. It seems horrible and torturous, but none of them question if they've been like abducted by aliens or taken to the future. They're just like, oh God, we're in a prison. And then Hypercube does have some, you know, slightly futuristic elements to it. But again, nothing that was really out of reach in the year that it was filmed and the year that it was released, right? It's, it's uh, other than the Hypercube itself, no one seems to be like from the future. There are lawyers and there are people who design door panels and private eyes and, and medical, you know, uh, people and hackers but it's not like i hacked the moon but then you get to cube zero <laughs> and we find out that the even though this is a prequel it takes place in a world that's got to be the future because whatever nation this is in which it, I, we talked about this when we talked about the first one no one seems to think even though the film is canadian the original cube cube is canadian at no point are they like, oh, they've taken me to the U.S. They all seem to be from the U.S. They say where they're from. It's all in the States. None of that is mentioned. And, and in Cube 2, Hypercube, they're all from the States. But in Cube 0, no nationality for anyone is ever mentioned. They talk about an explicitly fascist government that has soldiers that are not only tattooed on their forehead with the icon of the corporation, not even, you know, the flag of the nation that they serve, but the corporation for which they work. But they also have these, like, mind control computer chips that have a physiological effect of turning their eyes green. <laughs> that was so corny. <laughs> <laughs> that did not work at all. No, I was not a fan. Why bother? Like, you have this impossible-to-escape death trap that can, like, unleash all these different, like, threats and, like kill people from every possible direction again just no faith in the traps themselves or no budget to really like follow that idea through to its uh, most extreme degree but like to then release like a super soldier who's like you know drone controlled is not nearly as exciting or as inventive you could see that in basically any movie i'm in the cube i want to see cube stuff although i will say we saw a lot more cube stuff in cube zero and yes, I agree. There's a lot of there. I thought that you might end up loving Cube Zero the most because of how many traps there are. I think this is the one that finally gets the ratio of like traps to like, you know, conspiracy hypothesis scenes correct. Like it, it gets the rhythm right. Um, it's just it's missing all of the stuff that made the first two interesting, like the like philosophical does this place even exist? Are we all in hell? What even is this environment? Is all gone because we take a step back out of the cube and we see the people pushing the controls and like all the like origins and reasoning behind everything is like so explained that there's really nothing exciting going on except the traps. And the traps are cool. Like I liked the cold open of this a lot. The uh, acid spray. Uh, is so fucked up and gross. <laughs> Probably the best like single scene out of any of these movies. So yeah, I think they got the traps right. It's just, you know, there really wasn't much else going on, and I didn't think the bureaucracy stuff was all that interesting, to be honest. I really think you could cherry-pick like images and ideas from all three of these movies and synthesize them into like 
one great film. <laughs> it's just, uh, they're all like missing each other's parts. One big cube. Yes, that's what I'm saying, yes. We need cube cubed, like... <laughs> the fact that the second one is called Cube Squared Hypercube, and this one's called Cube Zero, is such a frustrating progression. <laughs> we really need the cube to the third degree uh, to really bring this thing together. Cube the third. Super cube. Yeah. Oh, God, please, bring it on. So I had a joke all prepared for this, and I think it'll work for Cube Cubed. Y'all ready? Rectangular yes. prison instead of oh, rectangular prison. I love it. I That's love great. it. Yeah. You are greenlit. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Give us a call, Tubi. We'll make it. We'll make Tubi, rectangular please. prison. We will. The first Tubi original being a cube sequel makes so much sense to me. Oh, that um, would be really so perfect. Needs to happen. Yeah. Tubi, please just, just let us know. <laughs> You could do like a total takeover of the of it, where they change the ta- the name to QB for like a day or two, for the world oh premiere of, of of Cube the Third, rectangular prism. the rectangular prism. Well, Allie, I think you had like a much more positive response to like the stuff outside of the cube and like why the people were there. I did actually. I enjoyed that to a sort of like paranoid radical person degree, just because it's like. Oh, dang. Government, corporatism, whatevers. But also, it's just it's just nice to be validated that I was on the right track, okay? <laughs> I, I don't get many opportunities to be right, okay? Um, <laughs> no, it's just, I did enjoy it, actually. I think it added to the camp a little bit more. And I think that's why... I think I really like Cube Zero a lot. I think it's my second favorite. I'm not going to go full favorite, but I think it might be my second favorite Cube movie, y'all. It was my second favorite, too. I really enjoyed it because of the camp aspect of, like, oh, they're rounding up radicals and putting them in prison. Because, you know, we we got to have that uh, that sort of dystopic feel. But also, you know, I love the Cube Traps. Big fan of that acid scene as well. My main thing is like, I was watching these movies and I was like, you know, these are like fanciful in general for me. And I was just like, you know, I think the reason why these just still strike me as like fanciful fiction and I'm able to be like, oh yeah, acid spray, that's neat, is that it's not really as dystopic as a current reality, unfortunately. (laughs) Like, that's the only thought I had watching Cube Zero is, oh, wait, this is basically already happening, but on such a massive scale without traps and any sort of escape other than our fractured legal system. Like, being test subjects? Oh, that's prison all the time. So it was just kind of one of those realizations where I was like, well, dang, this dystopia might actually be slightly better. <laughs> and then I wanted to cry. Oh, no. So that was kind of my, oh, I enjoy the background of Cube. It's kind of, uh, it's more, slightly more positive. But also just, I didn't mind the bureaucratic side of it because I thought it was very much like, you know, I liked the idea that they didn't realize that they were even like trapped in the cube and it felt like 
the devil's version of mystery science theater is these two guys trapped in a basement being forced to watch cube torture scenes. It still almost felt like it could have been something like, you know, a version of hell or something. Like it still feels like it could be supernatural because it is such a like large scope of a conspiracy. Yes. And there is something like particularly evil about the um, emphasis on consent forms and like filing yes. paperwork. Yes. Uh, it's like so mundanely evil that like, I don't know, that's, that's kind of like a funny gag after the good place already wrapped up, but like just, it, I don't know. It feels genuinely evil in a way that like is very relatable to me pushing papers when I go to work every week. I, this is a movie that very much seemed like it wore its uh, influences on his sleeve, which, you know, is kind of a love or hate thing. So, you know, there's, they're your matrix, but there's also so much Brazil here, especially in the yes. like, horrifying like paperwork aspect. And the fish in the jar is very there's a fish in yes. a percolator. And I was like, okay, okay, I can I can get behind <laughs> both of these things. So, you know, there was a lot there that I, I appreciated, even though, you know, I'm gonna agree that it didn't need to be that framing device. But I appreciated a lot of what it added. It sounds like such a bad idea on its face that, like, I, I should have been more angry at it than I was, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> by the end, I was like, okay, they justified it by, like, just extending the trap to an extra room. I do think this is probably, like, just as strong as the first one, if not stronger. I don't know. It's, it's up there for me as, like, one of the more successful examples as well, even if I think they all fall short slightly. There's something to be said for the fact that it, like, e- even though this character is not Kazan from the first movie, that he ends up essentially like Kazan because of the experimentation. There's something to be said for the fact that it closes the loop, and I don't think I don't think you see that coming. No. When I first saw this, when I was you know. 17 years old 18 years old i was like whoa you know like it blew my mind it's like oh my god it's just like kazan and cube you know this movie i've been watching since i'm gonna close the loop but like there is something to be said for that that it does take you by surprise in that moment where you're like oh where if you don't think about it too hard it is pretty impressive but it does really make you feel like you are trapped in the cube like even if you escaped it at the end of the first movie, now we know what happens to those people. They just get put back in or they burn to death. So I don't know. There is no escape from the cube. The technicians that we see, it's like they're in hell too, right? It's like even yeah. in hell, even the demons are being tortured. And I don't know. I enjoyed that. It even dials the uh, aesthetic back to the first one as well. as talking about like closing the loop. Like, the second one goes out on a limb and tries this like brightly lit, you know, white void kind of thing. And this one almost feels nostalgic for the, the lighting and the like set design of the original cube. Um, I know that's part of being a prequel, but it's also a deliberate choice as well. They could have made a prototype that had a whole different look to it. Yeah, it's a little bit more industrial and like cleaner because the cube and cube, it almost looks organic. Like it has all of the all of the color panels have these like exposed circuit boards, but when you're in like a red room, it almost feels like you're in 
like a Hellraiser dimension, right? It's red and, yeah. and pulsing and almost organic. And this has that same color change and simplicity of that as opposed to the stark whiteness of Cube 2 Hypercube. But I, I also like that it brought it back to that, uh, especially because, as we said before, the outer world of Cube 2, uh, of Cube 0, is much more advanced than what you would think is outside of the cube in Cube, the cube down to like <laughs> Jax's um Jax's uh two henchmen like oh we're gonna use your computers and then it like flips over this <laughs> QWERTY keyboard into just like a uh like a circuit board that they run their little their little nails across. Yeah. <laughs> what was that? And I loved it. What did y'all think of the look of hypercubes? Because that's the most like distinctly set apart one i i'm kind of for it it reminded me of like poltergeist 3 that like weird building with all, like the bright white lights and things like that it's like very clean in an upsetting way yes it gives it a very padded room asylum feeling yeah i think the thing that they could have done to work back in the old aesthetic in q2 hypercube that i was really kind of upset about is that they didn't give anybody cube uniforms cubiforms or yes as i like to call them that was upsetting to me because i was like okay we're gonna go to the trouble of making this very clean white background very straightforward but we're not gonna change your clothes you're just gonna be plopped right into the hypercube it's fine gonna guess that the idea of that was like there are a lot of mummified bodies for the accelerated time rooms mm-hmm. so like if you walked in the room and saw two mummified corpses in those like jumpsuits yeah. like the only way you could distinguish them would be um like a zoom in on the name tag and i don't know that i cared enough to keep all these characters names straight so i don't know if oh, i yeah. kept up with the plot so like you know seeing those two floating corpses like mid coitus um and one of them's wearing like that, that long flowing red, red dress yeah. yeah yeah it's like okay i instantly know what archetype character that is so maybe they kind of painted themselves on a corner with the costuming there they could do better as we all know we're all acknowledging they could do better <laughs> well when tubi gives us our funds so that we can make cube the third uh rectangular prism <laughs> we'll make sure <laughs> that they get jumpsuits i gotta say that that floating corpse scene with like the sex room and then also the uh i knew you'd like scene that. where we first encounter the um alternate dimension version of the uh, the older woman where it looks like she's just kind of mirrored for a second and the mirror version of herself goes off out of sync like those two images are very striking and like kind of above these movies they are every now and then there's these flashes of promise where i was like why isn't this movie better um, i really want this to be good and I, I think the further that one goes along, like the last like 20 minutes, particularly of Hypercube, um, it starts going bigger and bigger and bigger with its ideas. Um, Rather than imploding, it expands, you know? Yeah. I thought that same thing. And it made me feel very, like, in some ways, like, gave me a lot of, like, Annihilation vibes. Um, not just the movie, but also the book. So I was like, huh, huh, this could have been really a lot better. Like we've been saying, this could have been good. First move, remove the uh, iTunes visualizer. If the if the rooms are going to be, you know, non-physical traps, just don't try to do the, these computer objects attacking people. Like Disagree. Hard disagree. 
actually make the reality shift of the environment the tool of destruction and not like this like unreal theoretical geometry drawing i don't know i mean i kind of liked the geometry drawing if the kill hadn't been so tame if you could call it that like if it had actually been you know like chunks flying and not just getting like vacuumed into the the geometry i think i'd be i think i'd be down see brandon you already mentioned uh the good place so i'll circle back on that and say that that giant extra dimensional it's like a it reminds me a lot of you know when you have one of those outdoor hanging ornaments on a tree where it's like metal that's been cut and slightly rotated and catches the like when wind blows it turns and it catches the light Mm -hmm. in different ways it's like that but murderous and when (laughs) when chidi sees the time knife in the good place that's what i imagine the time knife looks like (laughs) you know and in this extra dimensional blade Maybe Allie's right. Maybe it's just, like, there's no tactile horror to it. Like, this movie does pull punches in a weird way. It really does. In a way that the other two don't. Isn't there a scene, I'm trying to remember, where, like, the bully character goes to kill another character, and the cube door closes, so we just hear the murder, and we don't see it? Yes, there is. It's like, well, what's the point of that? What are you hiding from me? (laughs) (laughs) The movies, like, withhold something from me in a way that, like, I cannot believe that I keep getting tricked into going into them thinking that I'm going to love the next one. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, that's how they get you. You're trapped in the cube with the rest of us now. And the Japanese one comes out in October of this year in Japan. Uh, I don't know when it's coming to America, but um, oh. I'm sure I'll go in with the same chipper smile on my face. Let's just gather up and have a, a Swamp Flicks uh, field trip. <laughs> Swamp Flicks field trip. CQ. <laughs> Swamp Flicks is going to Japan. What a perverse reason to go to Japan for the first time. I'm going to go watch Cube in the theater and then fly back home. <laughs> oh, God. I will, to add to the images that you said were really striking in Cube 2 Hypercube, there's, you mentioned the the mirroring as well as sort of the zero-G desiccated corpses. I also find at the end, whenever uh, Kate is like jumping from one cube into the next but like it's the same one so that she can like get the jump on Simon. I thought that was really neat, especially when it, it like the, it pulls out and you're seeing it like, <laughs> like it's happening in nine different Brady bunch cubes. I thought that was really cool. Doesn't it also like grid out, like almost like a DNA strand where it just becomes more and more like CG graphics of just like infinite lines of cubes. Yeah. That's what happens once it collapses. After she makes that really bad jump into it, into the exit. It kind of reminds me of the environment in um, Cabin in the Woods where all the like different monsters are stored. And there's like infinite cube pods. I'm sure that that was a, that cube was a, an influence, influence. on that. Yeah. yeah Positive. I, I guess I've, I've said as much as I can in defense of cube and cube <laughs> two hypercube as well as cube zero, the hypercube. And I guess I'll let it rest. I'm, I'm sorry that you didn't love these as much as I wanted you to, Brandon, but uh, I guess that's that. And Allie, I'm glad you did. <laughs> yeah. There's something to love in every one of these movies. I can say that. Like None of them were like complete waste of time, where I'm just like, why am I not watching something else? It was just like, 
I don't know. I just needed a little more of a push over the edge to enjoy it. What will the next episode be about, Brandon? Yeah, what will it be about, Brandon? I mentioned in our um, book swamp discussion at the top of the episode that um, I might watch, I might read Carmilla this week because it's short and uh, because it'll be good fodder for our next conversation, which is about lesbian vampires. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, She wanted to talk about this movie, Daughters of Darkness, and then the rest of us all picked a lesbian vampire movie to pair with it. And I'm really excited because I've been watching these movies for the past few days, and I think this is like one of the best subgenres of cinema <laughs> in general. Uh, they're all incredibly cool and sexy and like melancholy and hyper stylized. So I'm, I'm very excited to talk about them all, maybe with a, a book to make myself some more literate. So I'm not just like, it looks cool when they drink the blood. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, keep in mind, I have not watched Twilight. I am only. Uh, maybe like 99% through with the first book with plans to read the rest. I started them in the beginning of the pandemic. So it, it took a while because I kept getting distracted, but I do like vampire things. I am a sucker for it. So I can't wait. Can't wait. Well, I am going to once again, give a recommendation to forever night, uh, <laughs> starting currently Davies. And I'm going to suggest that Twilight and Forever Night would be improved if they were about lesbian vampires. I don't disagree with that. <laughs> Just based on the media I've seen. Do not disagree with that at all. It's the height of the vampire genre. You're making some <laughs> presumptions about what is and is not in Forever Night. You're correct, yeah. Everything's improved by vampire lesbians, so I think is the thing. Cube, rectangular prism, there will be vampire lesbians. <laughs> That's a Swampflix promise. That's a guarantee. Did you ever see and enjoy Blood Rain? Well, get on board for Cube the Third, Rectangular Prison. <laughs> uh, who enjoyed Blood Rain? <laughs> I don't know. I've, it's just been on my mind because of, you know, Stephen Dorff and his uh, comments of the past week where he said that Black Widow looked like a bad video game movie. And then everyone decided to chew him out, even though Stephen Dorff is fantastic. And in this house, uh, we love Stephen Dorff, now, forever, and always. Another universal truth. Yeah. Well, uh, like I said at the top of the episode, I'll link Boomer's um, recent round of reviews uh, in the show notes, both for Black Widow, which is good if you're not Stephen Dorff, and um, A Glitch in the Matrix, which is bad, no matter who you are. <laughs> bad for you and bad for the world. All right. Good night, everybody. Now I'll make you nothing.